It's showtime. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. You know, the right to bear arms is because that's the last form of defense against tyranny. Washington is fundamentally corrupt. There are more words in the IRS code than there are in the Bible. Welcome, everybody, to Blunt Force Truth. I'm your host, Mark Young, and we have a, a guest host today, which is Stone Washington. Stone is from Project 21, uh, which is a research center, and they work on advancing capitalism at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And and by the way, folks, I, when we talk about capitalism, I want people to understand capitalism is not a philosophy. Capitalist, capitalism is an operating system. And it's an operating system that that allows total strangers to cooperate with each other's, which eat with each other for their mutual benefit. And that's what makes it so amazing because perfect strangers come together. I have a pile of money. You have a car. I trade the pile of money for the car. You're happy with the money. I'm happy with the car. Everybody won. That's capitalism. It's as simple as that. All the other isms, fascism, socialism, uh, communism, all those other isms are not operating systems. They are philosophies that have sprung up in opposition to capitalism, which is the operating system. So understand, they're not the same. Capital, you can't say capitalism and socialism are just two different systems. No, capitalism is what is natural and organic to man. All of the other isms are in answer to how to defeat capitalism. Stone, do you agree with that? I mean, am I just out in left field here? What do you think? Oh, no, Mark, I, I agree with you 100%. Yes. And um, actually, when you were just mentioning that, I was thinking about this article I just wrote last week for National Review. Uh, and the, the title of it is uh, American Capitalism versus uh, China's Authoritarian Capitalism. And I, I literally make some of the similar points that you made where I try to defeat some of the misconceptions about how uh, China's socialist-based uh, form of capitalism isn't really uh, our understanding of capitalism in terms of how we allow active and consumer engagement in the markets and a, a healthy relationship between the public and private markets and a flourishing of um, exchange between manufacturer, supplier, and consumer. And in, in China, I, I talked about how it's, and under a socialist economy, it's impossible to have um, private benefit because everything in the economy is controlled in some way or shape or form by the government. And the government has every hand in uh, the development and exchange of goods and services in, in the economy. So I, I just I kind of made a defense for capitalism in my article and, and, and talked about how no other system has led to the greatest amount of, of upward mobility, of pulling people out of poverty, and of creating new job growth and opportunity than capitalism has. And so I, I agree with you 100% on that. And and here's the thing, folks. When when you talk to somebody who's a socialist, and it, it's so funny because when I was a young person, it was against the law to be communist. We were rooting communism out of America. Now we vote for communism. So, I mean, how things have changed so rapidly. But when you hear people, you'll hear people say that capitalism is greedy, capitalism is evil. The the response, your 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 correct response is capitalism inherently can't be evil when it is pure capitalism. 
because both parties have the opportunity to not conduct business with each other. Capitalism becomes evil when the government steps into it. Once the government steps into it, now you're picking winners and losers. Now you have government backing to one and no government backing to another one. We look at, I'll tell you the stuff that drives me nuts, Stone, is we see Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are out jumping on how they're supporting uh, the unions in different places, unions demanding more money from their employers. That's the government picking who the winners and the losers are. And the part I don't understand is why do they fail to say that the workers that work for a company, if the company doesn't pay them what they think they're worth, that they are free to leave hurting the company company will have to companies ultimately going to have to hire people. So if the company's not paying enough, they are free to leave and go to another company. And guess what? If they're good workers, another company will pay them more if they're worth more. But people just, this just escapes people. I mean, what do you think? Why, why does this become, why does something so simple seem so confusing to some people? Yes. Um, that's a good point. Yeah. I think, um, I think many people just don't really understand, uh, the true nature of, uh, of of unions and of um, the essence of collective bargaining units and and how people uh, actually have more um, rights and privileges than people give them credit for when you're a part of a union and also people don't understand that uh, many uh, there there are many hardworking individuals who work for an organization that aren't essentially a union member and they and they actually have uh, a greater leverage and liberty over. Kind of controlling the scope of, of their day-to-day responsibilities and um i, I think it, it, people just don't really understand that as in the economy in in our free market system uh a, a laborer is considered an agent where they have autonomy over their decisions on whether to buy or to not buy a good uh what whether to work for a certain organization or not work for a certain organization and they have that mobility to pursue the greatest opportunity that will provide the greatest return on their initial investment, whether that investment is in buying in a product or in uh, allowing themselves to um, basically uh, provide labor for a company for a certain amount of, uh, of course, a, a perceived benefit in return for what they'll be working for, for their wages. Uh, but people just don't really understand that they think that they're just kind of constrained by like big union or big government or a lot of these restrictions. And they, they think that they can just be controlled in those positions, but people have more autonomy and more um, leverage than we'd like to give them credit for. And I, I think you made a good point by um, mentioning that here. Most people are not living an autonomous life right now. Most people are, are having their lives dictated to them. And we really saw this during COVID-19 which we're going to get into in your article in a minute. And I, and I want to cover on something that's kind of the newest version of that. And that is uh, the governor of New Mexico. So the governor of New Mexico recently lost her COVID emergency powers, finally. So she decided to reinstigate her health emergency powers and decided to suspend the Constitution for 30 days. Now, this is so 
this is so crazy that Ted Lou posted on Twitter that to her, you can't do this. Now, when Ted Lou is telling you that you've crossed the line on violating the Constitution, you need to check yourself. <laughs> because Ted Lou just told you that you've crossed the line violating the Constitution. I'm interested to get your thought. And, and Matt, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I, I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist. I, didn't, I don't have my tinfoil hat on. I think this is a trial balloon. It's it's a 30-day order. No one in the right mind thinks that disarming honest people for 30 days is going to solve the crime problems in New Mexico. I think it's 30 days, one, because she knows in 30 days no one will be able to get to court to be able to defeat it. It'll be a moot point before it's ever heard. And two, I think it's a trial balloon on the, the part of our... Uh, socialist overlords to see, okay, just how much of a fight will people put up over this? I completely disrespect the constitution. Yeah. Let's, let's, cause we already saw it in COVID. Let's, let's make people wear masks. Let's tell people they have to stay home. Let's tell people like here in Michigan, uh, we decided you couldn't during COVID, you couldn't buy grass seed and paint. So you had to stay home, but you couldn't paint your house because the governor ordered that the retailers that could stay open couldn't sell things like paint and grass seed to work on your house. But alcohol, the government gets a bunch of tax dollars on. Alcohol, you could well, buy. I buy that. You could buy weed, too. You could buy weed, but you couldn't buy grass seed and, and paint to work on your house here in Michigan. So, I don't know. What what do you think? I think it's a trial balloon just to see how far we can go. What, what's your thoughts on this thing? Yes, yes. I I think that's um that's one of the unfortunate uh legacies of the COVID-19 pandemic is that I feel a lot of major uh blue state governors and uh mayors are pushing the boundaries of their unilateral executive authority where they're they think that they can take advantage of an emergency and, and like um Rahm Emanuel uh the, the the famous politician once said uh never let a crisis go to waste. And they they do they, they they take advantage of these kind of temporary emergency situations to expand their executive authority and, and they do that in a way to override existing constitutional limitations on their powers and, and in our in our constitutional system we have a series of checks and balances of, of limited government and, and one uh, the executive authority can't just take on these extra legislative or judicial functions. Uh, in a way that violates the Constitution, and with this new this New Mexico governor, um, I, I think that's just a heinous violation to our Second Amendment uh, rights, where we guarantee uh, the the right to a firearm. Uh, every American who's um, properly registered to own that firearm can do so, and and is it's, it's made in a way to ensure the safety of that individual who owns the firearm, not to not to put other people at risk. And oftentimes, um, I, I think you're going to see, especially since New Mexico is a, is a, is a border state, people are, aren't going to be as readily prepared for, uh, say, like the, the the large wave we're seeing of illegal immigrants uh, coming into the country. And, and many of them are uh, listed and known terrorists. Uh, many people are criminals. And, and you just you, you can't really disadvantage or disarm uh, a certain subset of the population and expect that there's not going to be chaos and disorder that's going to. 
come about from such a policy. And then also, I think, like you said, that's a good point. Because it's 30 days, she I think they, they intentionally did that because they, they knew they wouldn't be able to mount a legal uh, challenge to this crazy order. So they think that they can just get away with it and, and, and kind of just pretend like um, it's, it's perfectly fine. But it's not. Yeah. When you look at this, she sure first she violated the Constitution. Well, you got to make it clear. She said that gun violence and drug use are a statewide health emergency, not the rest of the country. It's those two things. I get that. And and by the way, I'm waiting for who's going to come up and say that climate change is is now a health emergency. You call that and and try to do the same thing when you look at what's happened here. okay, we're going to suspend the Constitution for 30 days. We're going to suspend the state's gun laws for 30 days because people have a permit to carry. So we've suspended the the permits, the laws. She has made it a civil infraction with a $5,000 fine. Governors, executives, folks, executives cannot write laws. Only legislative bodies can write laws. She has written a law making it a civil crime with a $5,000 fine. This is what she has done is pure dictatorship. There is there is no question about it. The sheriff came out and said that he would not enforce it. And she came out and blasted the sheriff for being squeamish and not having the guts to take action to solve crime problems. Now, not to mention. Let's think of the logic of this. Illegal. Criminals with illegal guns caused crime. So we're going to take the guns away from the legal people because apparently the governor thinks that all the criminals are going to leave their guns at home for 30 days because all the criminals who go around shooting people are now afraid of a $5,000 fine. They're not afraid of killing people, but they're afraid of the $5,000 fine. So we're going to leave all our illegal weapons at home for a month. And then after everybody gets their guns back, then we'll take our illegal weapons out. We'll go back to killing people. That is that is such bizarre thinking that would defy any type of logic on any basis. It, it is bizarre. Just like you said, this is just a power play. The thing everybody remembers, so El Paso and Juarez are super close. But New Mexico is directly north of El Paso. It's that little corner of Texas. Literally, the gun crime is cartel gun crime from Mexico. Wasn't Juarez the most dangerous place in the world? Yeah, that was pretty tough. So I want to get to one other thing, and that is uh, Dr. Renfield. Ooh, Dracula's assistant. Yes, Dracula's assistant. Oh, okay. It's actually Dr. Redfield. That was Renfield. Renfield. Redfield was was in the Trump administration under COVID. He has now come out and said that there was efforts being made inside the CDC, inside the FDA, to deliberately not tell Americans that the vaccines were going to have side effects, that we knew they were going to have side effects. By the way, on this show, we told everybody they were going to have side effects before they even existed because we had the science on it. But that there that there were going to be side effects, that it wasn't going to be 100 percent, that it wasn't going to prevent the disease and that the government, our government deliberately deceived us. This, that's the nature. of. I mean, sure. our government lied to us. 
And I think it's pretty safe to say our government kept lying to us. Yeah, I, at this point, uh, at this point, not with, you know, I'm not trying to turn into Alex Jones here, but at this point, I'm kind of in the mindset of whatever the government tells me, I probably need to figure out, okay, what's the opposite of whatever it is they're telling me. So, Stone, let's go to your let's go to your story here. Your story is about minority-owned businesses uh, that are suffering. And your headline was suffering a second pandemic of crime as local governments handcuff the police. Now, by the way, this same governor in New Mexico is also a supporter of cashless bond because she thinks criminals shouldn't have to post bail. But the honest people need to give up their guns. What's this? What's going on here? What's the goal? What do you think is the goal of this lunacy? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of finding it a little bit mind-boggling to see that we actually have uh, some, a lot of these policies and calls for just disarming citizens while emboldening uh, the, the criminal population across these vulnerable cities. I think um, for, for, for my article, I, I was I was focusing on how it's like a, a misinformed sense of criminal justice where you, we, we have states like um, Illinois, which I think it was in late July of this year, they implemented a zero cash bail system. And I think they're going to be the first state to, to actually do that. Um, that's they, they, they do it on a, on a basis that they, they, they feel that uh, criminals shouldn't be unjustly held against their will uh, in, in, in a jail while awaiting trial. Uh, but in doing so, they don't understand that that's just going to incentivize repeat offenses or what they call uh, recidivism. The, the recidivism rate is going to go higher. And that and that's what happened in um, places like New York, where uh, I, I believe uh, shoplifting offenses, I think like 30 percent of all shoplifting in New York in 2022 was because of because of repeat offenders who just got out of jail and then uh, went right back to what they they know best is, is just to kind of rob the same store, corner store, retail department, uh, you name it. And um, it, it's, it's really, it, and it really uh, puts police in a more vulnerable position because they, they literally have to work twice or three times harder kind of catching the same people that they were just dealing with the previous month or the previous week. And it's, it's really sad. And then also um, I, I talked about in my article how even some cities like in Chicago, uh, they have these measures that try to hamper or hamstring the, uh, the peacekeeping efforts of the of the police uh, uh, response in that city. And, and, and uh, some examples include uh, police aren't allowed to uh, pursue like an active chase on foot after a criminal. Uh, they're not allowed to uh, use like pat downs for people who are suspected to have like a knife or a gun on them. Uh, and and then some a lot of other examples where they just uh, really kind of basically kind of delegitimize the uh, peacekeeping efforts of, of police officers. And that serves to also demoralize them where they don't feel like they have the confidence that they can do their job in, in a way to maintain peace in their communities. And then also criminals look to that and they feel more emboldened that they can just, you know, commit crime without being checked or, 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 or case certain neighborhoods in a way that they couldn't be able to do so in the past. But now because the police presence is, is low or not as strong, they can just hit it much harder. And that that's just going to really um, place us at a greater disadvantage, really harm minority communities in specific. And, and I don't think people know about this too much, but minority communities are the ones that are hurt the most from these uh, criminal justice cashless bail policies that we're seeing. 
when we look at when we look at how society functions, society functions on a loosely knit social contract. We have this social contract. When I drive down the freeway and I'm in my lane, the car next to me has a social con contract with me that he'll stay in his lane and not just crash into the side of me. We have this social contract that when I go to a Walgreens store, that I'll pay for something when I walk out the door. That's our social contract. There are people in society who are sociopathic and a variety of other behaviors where they don't they don't adhere to the social contract. They don't believe in the social contract. They believe that they should be able to do whatever they want to do. That is why we have laws. That's the reason for the laws for law enforcement, for a judicial system. The only thing that enforces the social contract on people who do not feel that the social contract is their issue is consequences. It's consequences that stop these people from violating the social contract. We're now removing the consequences. So I believe it's what in San Francisco you can steal nine hundred and seventy-five dollars in yep. shoplifting, almost a grand. Yep. So people walk into a Walgreens store in San Francisco and they take a shopping bag and they just start clearing shelves. There's whole like gangs running around that like a uh, even like Versace as long as they keep each person's theft under a grand. Yeah, just go in the and steal it. Crazy. Like eBay and Amazon is now becoming the largest fence in the world. They are the biggest fence in the world now because this stuff, they're not stealing shampoo because they don't have shampoo and they need to take it home. They're stealing the entire shelf and sticking it out on eBay and selling it. And we see this in our business. Uh, products that sell for $30, people will go steal it and they'll stick it out on eBay for $20. And then consumers, oh, look, I saved 10 bucks. I'll go buy it from this person. And and that's these are these are not just random acts of violence. We're encouraging gangs, organized crime of a sort, to go in there and clean these stores out. Uh, Lowe's, a home improvement store, just hit one billion dollars in shoplifting this year. A billion dollars just out of Lowe's stores. Uh, we're seeing we're seeing these stores closed up, and. To me, there's two things that are going to happen. One, the minority communities are going to be left without stores because the chains are going to have to leave the stores. They can't keep running stores that are being robbed all day long and keep them open. <clears throat> two, now you have the small businessman who runs the local party store, the local liquor store, the, you know, whatever kind of business that's in town, a jewelry store, an electronics store, they're not going to be able to afford to stay in business because they can't even get insurance anymore, can they? Some of these places can't even find insurance. Hey, everybody, I want to take a minute to tell you about a product called Daily Zen. With, uh, with everything that goes on in the news today, um, guess what happens? We have something called a sympathetic and a parasympathetic nervous system. All of this craziness going on drives our parasympathetic nervous system. 
And that means, to put it plain, we're in this fight or flight mode all the time. Well, we need to get out of that. And things like meditation help and the right nutrition helps. And sometimes what helps is just turning the news off. Well, I want to tell you about a product. It's from Vitalia Life, V-A-T-E-L-L-I-A, life.com. It's called Daily Zen. Now, this is, and as you guys know, if you listen to this show, I'm, I'm really into longevity and really understand uh, a, good pra- a great knowledge of nutrition, to be honest with you. The formula, the blend on this stuff is amazing of what's in it. It is a great formula. Now, what this will do for you, just so you understand, this will act as an anti-inflammatory, which our bodies become very inflamed from all the stress. It reduces that stress, and it increases, it will help increase serotonin. And why do you want to do that? Because serotonin will make you feel better. So this is called Daily Zen, and I hope you'll try it out, and I hope you'll let us know how it goes for you. It's Vitalia Life. Go to bluntforcetruth.com. Look in the show notes. You'll find a link there to it. Use the uh, discount code BFT, like Blunt Force Truth. Get 10% off or sign up for the, um, the subscription, and I think you get your first month for free. Go get it. You're going to love this stuff. And if there's ever a time in history that we need to, something to zen us out, it is right freaking now. So good luck with it. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. And, and to that point, I was just thinking about um, something I wrote in my article. Uh, I, I, I just talked about how uh, there was a survey um, regarding small business insurance. And I think uh, 90% of all uh, small businesses, uh, they basically said that um, they weren't confident in their current insurance plan as a, a means of uh, sustaining themselves. And also, um, I think 51% of them said that they uh, weren't adequately prepared against a potential threat like an arson or robbery or shoplifting. Uh, and then I also a, a third of those polled said that they didn't even have insurance in the first place. And and, and then, of course, we know from the COVID pandemic, pandemic that um, because of the increased crimes from the 2020 riots, that led to a lot of areas having much higher insurance rates than they had before and making it more unaffordable for companies who, uh, before the pandemic, weren't even financially resilient to begin with. So they already came into the pandemic in a, in a position of weakness. The pandemic hit them, and then the second wave of crime is hitting them. And then now they're, they're already don't have much money on hand, but they have to deal with these increasingly high insurance rates. It's just very, a, a terrible situation. Uh, and, and then also, um, I, th- I think fr- from the pandemic, from the, the companies that were lucky enough to kind of barely survive or barely make ends meet, it's going to take them at least seven years or more to fully recover or rebound. Uh, they based on like an Oxford and a McKinsey study that said that, um, just I think the, the regular rate for us, a regular business would be able to kind of recover by maybe after five years, but for small businesses, at least seven or more years. And they're going to have to make extreme changes just to be able to uh, go back to the, the pre-COVID 2019 levels that they were uh, in, in order to be financially afloat in the future. Uh, so it, it's, it's very sad what we're seeing. And, and um, it, we're, I don't think we're going to really ever fully recover from what's happened. It seems that every move that 
the left side of the government does. And and for the most part, I'm going to say the left, for the most part, we're dealing with a uniparty in many cases. But the extreme left side of the aisle, whether it's gun control, whether it's cashless bail, whether it's allowing people to to steal. And and here's here's the thought, you know this. The comment is, well, we're not going to risk people's lives for property. Why would we risk somebody's life that an employee gets hurt or a thief gets hurt or a cop gets hurt for merchandise? Because it's a victimless crime because there's insurance. So the insurance will pay for it. No, it's not victimless. Insurance companies are real businesses and they charge that business back to cover that. But it seems like every move that they make has an outsized effect or an oversized effect on the the black community. It, it literally looks like what they're doing is is every piece of this puts the black community at higher risk. When we think about, you know, you were talking about Chicago, how difficult it is to get a gun permit in Chicago. Well, who needs a gun permit in Chicago? A, a black family who lives in the south side of Chicago or a wealthy family who lives in Lincoln Park? But but who are they going to give the permit to? They're going to give the permit to the white guy who lives in Lincoln Park. And they're not going to give the permit to the black guy who lives in the south side of Chicago. And he's the guy whose life is in danger. Why is right. that? Why is this? Why, why are they... Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, the I, I, I think has a history of this. Right. It, it's and it's so ironic too because it's um uh the black black voters are like the, the bread and butter of the Democratic Party and you can just do the look at any previous election within the past ten years blacks have turned out uh, even especially for national elections at least ninety to ninety four percent for the Democratic candidate. Uh, but it's it's but then you see the um, the effects of a lot of these uh, criminal justice reform policies and these uh, policing policies. Uh, blacks are disproportionately the victims in many of these um, major these these blue cities uh, like Chicago. Uh, and, and you and you think that um, yeah you you would have policies that actually incentivize uh, greater um, safeguards for black communities to be able to have access to getting a gun permit to protect themselves and their families. But as you mentioned, it, 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 it's always just um, the, the opposite. It's just like the people who really don't need a gun permit or who live in these gated communities who are privileged or have some access to a means of uh, uh, protecting themselves or just don't really have um, a proximity to a violent criminal hotspot. They're able to have like it's, uh, their own private security force or their own access to firearms without any issues. But yeah, we, we see so many um, of these uh, uh, these policies that try to uh, de-emphasize uh, police presence in communities and also that um, disarm the uh, black and brown communities in, in these cities. We, we see this time and time again that um, blacks are, are hurt the most disproportionately by this. And also that creates um, a vacuum of uh, businesses and perhaps people who have a little bit more leverage and money to be able to move somewhere else because they see that the, the, the crime rate is just unsustainable. They can't live in these neighborhoods anymore with the peace of mind. And so you, when you see like a, a large migration of these people like leaving like 
the South Side of Chicago or this, those inner city neighborhoods, that's going to actually just invite more crime because, as we, as we say, like politics abhors a vacuum. That's the same for uh, criminal behavior as well. Criminals like to um, kind of coalesce around an area of disorder, and where there was once like like a business, they would like to kind of um, occupy these areas where there's just vacant buildings or broken broken windows across different buildings or areas with a lot of graffiti and uh, disorder. That actually is going to incentivize more criminals to, to to kind of be in those areas, and then that's going to just kind of exacerbate the existing problems that were there. And of course, as we said, the the main victims are going to be black and brown Americans. And so it, it's just kind of a, a a terrible cycle that we're going to be seeing from a lot of these failed policies in in in, in blue cities like Chicago. When Rudy Giuliani became the mayor in New York, he implemented a broken window theory. And New York became probably the safest big city in the country from doing that. I mean, isn't that probably a fair observation? Yes, yes. So, yeah, from uh, Rudy Giuliani's, um, his tenure in the 1990s, yeah, that the, the broken windows theory was very effective safeguard. And it, it was just based on um, common sense, proactive policing measures, just allowing police to occupy an area that's a criminal hotspot, uh, ha- have a, a nice repertoire with the um, community leaders, uh, kind of keep their ears to the ground about any suspected uh, violence or if, if they know that there's going to be um, an area that criminals like to kind of coalesce around, they would kind of you know place a, pre- a police presence there to prevent uh, some type of violent crime from happening before it does. And it's, 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 it's really nice. And it's, I, I think um, many cities are doing themselves a disservice by not bringing a resurgence of these uh, proactive broken windows policing because um, it, it literally led to um, modest and substantial benefits for New York uh, during Giuliani's tenure. And so, yeah, thank you for mentioning that. So broken window theory, folks, if you're not familiar with it, it came from a, a social science experiment. And what they were studying was that they started studying abandoned buildings Abandoned buildings had a lot of windows. And by, by studying the behaviors, they, they would find that if somebody broke one window on an abandoned building, and if that window wasn't replaced immediately, within hours, not even days, but within hours, someone would come along and break another window and another window and another window. And, and the time between windows being broken became shorter and shorter because the bad element in the area realized there's no consequence for breaking windows here. This is okay. You can break windows. Now, what was interesting, when someone broke one window, if they immediately went in and replaced the broken window, then the odds of someone breaking another window became much lower because people realized, okay, they don't want broken windows here. The same holds true with graffiti. The fastest way to stop graffiti is to immediately paint over it or scrub it off the next day and to keep doing that because that's what discourages graffiti. Well, this happened to broken windows. So what Giuliani did using broken window theory, he decided to start making the smallest and most petty crimes have obvious retribution and the way or obvious consequences. And the way he did it 
was New York was running rampant with turnstile jumpers. So people would just jump over the turnstile to get into the subway. Nobody paid, just jump over the turnstile. So he had transit cops start arresting every person who jumped the turnstile and they would handcuff them together and line them up on the platform. So people who were getting in and out of the subway would see 20 people handcuffed together as they would accumulate turnstile jumpers and keep handcuffing them together and then hauling them off and doing it again. Now, is jumping a turnstile going to stop people from committing murder? It did, because the bad element in New York started to realize there's a consequence in this city for littering. There's a consequence in this city for jumping a $3 turnstile. Imagine what they'll do to me if I go and shoplift a thousand dollars. I mean, they're gonna put me in they're gonna put me in jail for the weekend for three bucks. What are they gonna do for me do to me when I go clean off the shelf in Walgreens? That's what worked, and that's what made New York so safe. Now, for some reason, the left has decided we're gonna flip and we're gonna put that on its head. <clears throat> And we're going to say, well, these these crimes of property aren't worth pursuing. Because human life is more valuable than this. We don't want to risk someone being injured over a thousand dollar purse. That doesn't make any sense. It's just it's just property. And that encourages, that emboldens the criminal to go in and do things. Now, I have a question for you. Everything that seems to be happening. It cost all businesses, big and small. But again, just as these behaviors seem to have the most impact on, on the black and urban community, these behaviors have the biggest impact on the small business. Because the small business doesn't have the, the depth and the locations and the mass to be able to absorb the cost of the shoplifting. Do you believe there is any possibility that the goal of this government is the elimination of small business, to get rid of small business? And the reason I throw that out there is we are seeing a very obvious goal to get rid of small and community banks. Federal government since the Obama era <clears throat> has been doing everything they can to crush, to crush small banks. And they're at it again right now with liqu with liquidity tests where I'm going to tell folks right now, you're going to see, I'll bet you're going to see 20, 30% of small community banks put out of business in the next 24 months because of new liquidity tests that are put in place. I think there's a goal to get rid of small banks. I think there's a goal to get rid of small business because entrepreneurs are the are the freest people in the country. They're the hardest people to, to manipulate, the hardest people to control. It's easy to control Wells Fargo. It's easy to control Pfizer. It's easy to control Bank of America or General Motors because these companies are quasi-governmental units now in themselves. The corporations and the governments are so intertwined, it's easy for the government to have influence. It is very difficult for the government to go have this great influence on a guy with a liquor store, on a, a guy that you know has two electronic stores, on a bank with three locations. 
Uh, am I crazy here or what do you think? No, no, I, I think um, the points you make are very well, well made and, and very sound. Um, I, I, I think that uh, it, certainly the um, response to small businesses after the pandemic has been uh, a sense of callous disregard for their existence and for their um, importance in our uh, e e economic system. Because uh, small businesses, not too many people know, they basically make up about 50% uh, of, of all businesses in the country. And most of the uh, new jobs that we uh, rely upon every month, uh, most of them are coming from small businesses or from these um, these firms that have between like 100 to 1,000 uh, employees and have a revenue of about 16.5 million a month. Uh, they, they make up the backbone of our, our economic system. And, and, and they, they um, basically, uh, I think a lot of these policies that we're seeing that just, you know, would we, we just kind of say, oh, the um, the damage is is, co is covered by insurance. Um, small businesses that don't exist anymore, uh, new ones will just rise up from the ashes after the pandemic. Uh, the lockdown orders were necessary. Uh, we, you know, people can find somewhere else to work or something like that. That, that kind of callous disregard and that mindset that that plays into your 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 point about how it, it just seems like the the objective is to do away with small businesses or to just have a, a, a means of exerting greater control over entrepreneurship and of the rise of new businesses in our country. And, and I, I feel like it's it's that that, that that's very uh, um, dangerous and draconian way of thinking because um, the, the, the best way for small businesses to thrive are when they're given the, the greatest leverage to conduct their business in a way that it, it basically meets their goals and objectives and also satisfies the needs of their basic consumers. And when we have um, just just a, a mindset where we're where we're against um, regional banks or, or or small regional mom and pop shops that have served these communities for 50, 100, maybe even 150 years, that's just going to be a, a huge disservice to uh, people who live in the neighborhood. And, and what you're going to be seeing is, is a lot of people, uh, if you get rid of a, a large number of small businesses in the area, that's going to have a, a, a terrible effect of incentivizing people who have the means and the leverage to move to another um, community. And, and thus, that's going to, um, like I said earlier, create a void of either a lot of vacant homes or just places uh, that people once were occupying that they're not no longer are there. Uh, and, and, that, and that's just going to really kill off a lot of the um, economic growth that once was in those communities because these small businesses that, that kind of make up a central uh, node in that area don't exist anymore. And so it, it's, it's very, very devastating. And I, I think we need to um, kind of basically governments need to do their due diligence to enact safeguards that protect small businesses from rampant crime and, and, and rising criminal uh, conduct and disorder, but also just having an acknowledgement of the importance that they play in our free market system, because we, we, we can't exist as a country without having successful entrepreneurs or innovators or people who can kind of generate wealth through these small independent businesses. The first thing I want to tell you, folks, is when we think about innovation, innovation always comes from startups and small business. Procter & Gamble doesn't, when Procter & Gamble has an innovation, an innovation at Procter & Gamble is now in a new fresh scent. That's innovation at Procter & Gamble. 
when Procter & Gamble wants to have a new product line, we'll say like OxyClean, what do they do? An entrepreneur started OxyClean out of his garage, built a brand on a new, new type of cleaner, and then a big company like Procter & Gamble goes and buys it. So innovation comes from buying innovation from the small company. When you wipe out the small business, you wipe out the innovation in the country. All of this innovation came from small business. But there's another issue. When you, we look at a company like Walgreens, 9,000 plus stores. So if Walgreens has 100 stores, 200 stores that are having $2,000 a day, $3,000 a day stolen, Walgreens can say, okay, we're going to have to raise prices by 3% across all 9,000 stores to compensate for this. When you're a pharmacist with one location serving the community and gangbangers come in and steal $2,000 a day out of your store, you're out of business. You're done. You don't, because you don't have any, any economies of scale to spread this loss across. This is not, these are not victimless crimes. You're putting companies out of business. You're putting people out of jobs and you're getting rid of the innovation and you're getting rid of sometimes the, the only source in the community. I mean, when you take a look at some of the urban communities, sometimes independent stores are the only thing service, serving those, those urban communities because the big chains don't want to go there because they're like, we're not going to go there because we're just going to, it's going to be too much stealing. So we're not going to be there. Look at Walgreens. Walgreens shut down what 30 stores in San Francisco. I think it was. Yeah. Just as you guys were talking, I was pulling up all the stuff in the, the big mall down there. Nordstrom's is closing. It's just more and more this month. Uh, I think it's up to 12 additional stores. The mall's going to be empty. And that's, those are flagship stores. Yeah. The mall's done. Walgreens closed a bunch of stores. I think target closed several stores. So San Francisco, as an example, which used to be an amazing city, by the way, San Francisco is going to be a third world country with no major retail left in it. And on top of that, the small businesses aren't going to be able to survive. It's not going to be any paying population there. It's when you think about this, folks, it defies gravity. It defies logic. And. What we have to do as Americans, we have to start using our executive function and start doing critical thinking. Stop listening to the media. Stop taking the media's answers for things and start asking yourself questions. This doesn't make sense to me. Why would anybody do this? Why would anyone get rid of, of cash bond? Now, the, 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 the reason is that cash bond disproportionately affects the black community. I, and I love how everything the Democrats do is to help blacks, help women, help LGBTQ, and help the, the ecology. And everything they do hurts every one of those groups. I mean, it's amazing. We're going to say that we're here to help you, and we're going to bury you. <clears throat> we look at the Democratic Party, Democratic Party was the party of the South. That was they were the side, they were the slavery side. When that ended, they became the Black Laws. And then they became the Ku Klux Klan. And and it goes on and on and on. Margaret Sanger. But absolutely. Nobody when you look at Margaret Sanger and, and Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger believed 
that she needed to euthanize the black community. But this is not a secret. Trick them. Use the pastors to make it sound like it's not that. None of this has changed. The only thing that has changed is the Democratic Party has figured out how to wrap it up and claim it is in your best interest. But it is not in your best interest. What what happened, in your opinion, what happened here, Stone? I mean, we look back at Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was a Republican. And blacks were Republican. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. But somehow they managed to draw them over to this side. And what, what throws me off even more, the black community does such an amazing job of maintaining their faith and Christianity in the black community. And nothing could be more anti-faith and anti-Christian than what is happening in the Democratic Party. Yet the black community continues to remain loyal here. Why, why are they remaining loyal or are they not remaining loyal? Is it starting to break? Yes, that that's a very good question. Um, I, I know from just just when looking in history, uh, I think a, a big like, like you you're right to say that um, Republicans uh, or blacks traditionally were Republican uh, throughout much of the twentieth uh, century and, and even prior. Uh, they they t- traditionally had a conservative mindset of limited government of uh, promoting traditional family values and of uh, being active participants uh in our free market system and just appreciating uh our having a strong respect for constitutional governance and but we when we see we see now this recent or, or not so recent but the switch to kind of voting alongside big government liberal democratic policies uh i, I think that was because of um the democrats were very strategic in uh, placing themselves in positions during the uh, this this 1960s during the civil rights movement, where they kind of occupied those um, kind of opportunities to pass major civil civil rights legislations through the JFK and then later the LBJ's administration, uh, and they they kind of branded themselves as being kind of the the, the best friends of of black rights of black um, civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King and others, and um, but. It, they they they're just able to kind of market themselves as that where as you see now um uh, the blacks are ironically disproportionately more likely to suffer under many policies promoted by uh democrats and in, 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 in uh predominantly democratic cities uh and, and but i think to your to answer your question um it seems like uh blacks just like to just maintain a um an allegiance to voting time and time again for Democrats because they just they don't really see any other like feasible alternative. They don't I think I don't think they really understand a lot of the um the 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 benefits of the the reformative measures that certain conservatives uh and even many black conservatives are are, are promoting as a um basically as an alternative to what they've known for so many decades and and it's just they just think it's just kind of just programmed into their mindset. They just love to be uh, to, to kind of associate themselves with a party that they known for so many years, and because it, the, their their parents, their grandparents, their ancestors have kind of identified within that party, despite the detrimental policy impacts that many uh, politicians in that party are promoting, they're just going to 
maintain their loyalty and just kind of go with what they know. And it, I think it's, it's, I think many voters, um, regardless of whether you're going to vote for Democrats or Republicans, we, you just need to do your due diligence and educate yourselves about what policies these people are actually pushing and do a deep consideration of how that's going to affect my uh, bottom line, my means of producing uh, a sustainable income and, and, and of, of producing for my family and and, 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 do, and and do these views align with my deeply held religious beliefs and my understanding of right versus wrong. And I think if, if you did more, like you mentioned earlier, we need more critical thinking and more um, of a, uh, a, a critical means of making decisions that impact our political futures. And if you have people that have that mindset and think more like that, you, you probably would see a, a greater divergence of people kind of moving from one party to another based on common sense. And, and so I, I, I just want to raise that point. If we had an honest media, this problem probably wouldn't be a problem. But when we look at when we look at the mainstream media right now, it is a it is a propaganda arm for the Democratic Party. I mean, they are doing everything they can to protect the Democratic Party. They're doing everything they can to cover for Biden. Um, I do think it was interesting that CNN came out and said there's no way to spin this. America is deeply uh, angry with with Joe Biden. I think that was amazing that even CNN said that. <clears throat> that was Dana Bash. It's making me start to think that even the mainstream media is starting to think that their guy can't get elected. And, and if you think about this for a minute, the sitting president, it, it appears by polls, polls by CNN, that the sitting president, if the election was held today, would lose by three points to a guy with 97 felony charges. I mean, so if you're if you're in the Democratic Party and you're looking at your best your best candidate, your sitting president is polling three points under a guy with 97 felony charges. You should have concern. You should you should be worried about that. I was surprised. I was surprised that President Biden decided to not attend anything for 9-11. No 9-11 uh, memorials this week. That's the first time that the President of the United States, in 22 years, first time the President of the United States has not been present at the 9-11 memorials. He's not good at easy wins, free wins, things where you don't have to say anything other than status quo, you know, our hearts thoughts with people that perish, the heroes, yada, yada, easy, free wins. They don't even do it anymore. He went to Alaska and spoke to uh, a military base where he spun another complete lie to the military. So he went and told the military in Alaska he remembers 9-11 well because he was standing on the pile the day after the buildings came down. And he goes into this whole story of, of how he looked and he saw the buildings and he saw the destruction. Except congressional records show that he was in the Senate that day because he was literally in Washington, D.C. voting on a bill while he claims he was standing on the pile looking at surveying all of the destruction now why is no one calling this out i mean that's 
that's not a mistake. That's just, I just, I'm just lying to you. I'm just making stuff up and I'm just lying Do to you. Do you think it's like active lying or he just can't remember anything? So I can tell you as a therapist that dementia can create a lot of false memories. Uh, is that possible? Yes, except Joe Biden's been telling these lies for 50 years. So he did not have dementia when he said that he graduated top of his class and had three degrees and went to college on a on a scholarship. He did not have dementia then. He just made it up. Your your story is ABC, NBC. They are calling him out on this. Are they? They are. I'm on, I just saw it on NBC. I'm on ABC. Biden marks September 11th anniversary with U.S. troops in Alaska. First paragraph. He talked about how he remembered standing there at ground zero. However, he was in Washington, D.C. That's the headline. For ABC News. Article. I mean, how how do you do this? You defend that. I mean, that is crazy. And why do people vote for it? I'll tell you the thing that gets me is I really I had great respect for Martin Luther King. And there was a lot of things about Malcolm X that I really liked. And Martin Luther King is famous for making the the the, the comment about judging a man by the content of his character, not by the color of his skin. Now we look at critical race theory. And, and woke philosophy, and they're now demanding that the first thing I do when I talk to Stone Washington, the first thing I need to do is I need to identify him as a black man before I even bother to find out who he is as a human. This makes no sense. Martin Luther King, I've got to believe that the guy is spinning in his grave right now with what they have done with the civil rights movement. They're, the civil rights movement is being moved backward by this. Remember we talked about the segregated graduation? Right. We now want there. we now want an all-black graduation in colleges. We now want all-black dorms. Right. On That's segregation. That's really segregation. <laughs> Why are we demanding segregation? When we fought to get rid of segregation. How that's actually the good question though. Why are they? Stone, what do you think? Why? Why 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 do this? Yes, that's uh yeah, that that's it's it's really insane when you think about it. Um I, I think the critical race theory or, or CRT, I, I think really pushes this kind of um resurgence of segregation and, uh, and and of kind of race-based discrimination because they in their in their eyes they're um trying to pursue a a, a return to um kind of defining history by a person's skin color and also going only focusing on the very ugly tendencies of our nation's history that deal with slavery and, and but they, they try to encapsulate our entire history as if it was um a result of slavery and race-based discrimination and segregation and and, and it's just it's, it's a very skewed backwards outlook and, and, and it turns on its head what what, doc, what you mentioned dr king's quote was of um judging a, a person not by the their the color of their skin but by the content of the character looking at a person inwardly not judging a book by its cover critical race theorists don't do that they they they, they literally um they, they say that because you're white or because you're black your history uh, of the, the history that's associated with your race is going to define 
who you are as a person and what you'll likely do in the future. And there's no way you can redeem yourself from that. Uh, the, the matter, even, even if like three generations of your family weren't slave owners or didn't have a racist bone in their body because of your skin color, you're just programmed to be hateful or, or, or to, to be antagonistic against the, the, the person of another race. And, and it's, it's, it's just like, I, I believe they do this because they're trying to, um, create this a, a new form of indoctrination that creates this like a, a kind of a, a reverse racism that's embedded within our educational system, and, and they, they specifically target K through twelve education. So people at a very young age who are just kind of learning about the fundamentals of who they are as an individual and are are forming friendships with other people without thinking about their skin color or what what racial or ethnic background they are. But CRT people are trying to they're trying to control and micromanage people's thinking in a way that programs us to to hate somebody because of their race or to to be ashamed of ourselves because of the race that we come from and it's it's really sad and, and sickening to see this but it's it's i think it's just this they're, they're trying to push this reprogramming or re-education yeah when i when i got ready for this morning show i looked at my notes okay i'm gonna i'm gonna be interviewing stone washington where is he from so on and so forth critical race theory would say Oh, I'm going to interview a black man today, and he happens to be Stone Washington and happens to do these things. But first, I need to recognize his skin color. I I notice we're on video. I notice it, but it has nothing to do with the conversation we're having. And it it's reverse racism. Uh, what's the guy's name? Abram X. Kendi is that the is that the guy I'm thinking of? He, yes. Yeah. He quote. I couldn't believe this quote. His quote was the only solution to to systemic racism is more racism. That you can only solve racism by becoming racist, by reverse the reversing the racism on the other group. So we're we're literally saying two wrongs make a right is 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 the position here. I mean, it. it is, yes. how do you make, how does anybody make sense out of, we just need more racism? That's what we're lacking in this country. We need more racism. He likes negative multiplication, right? He's a math major. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, and, and, and that's that's a very flawed ideology that um, actually the, um, and you, you'll probably already know that the uh, U.S. Supreme Court actually struck that down in uh, the recent uh, UNC and Harvard uh, the diversity cases and in, in, in college admissions. Um, it, it, it was a means of, uh, I think one of the justices, it might've been Chief Justice Roberts said that, uh, that racism isn't a means to fight against existing racism, that uh, you can't fight fire with fire and, and, and just having like a set of, um, uh, uh, of like equitable policies that benefits, uh, a community that you view as marginalized or as diminished by existing history while like raising them up while putting everybody down uh, or, or basically raising up a certain race or group at the expense of everybody else, that's not going to decimate racism. Racism can't be kind of whitewashed in that way. It, it, and it's, it, it's, it's really sad. So I, I just, I just wanted to kind of point that out that um, with, within that, that recent uh, Supreme court case, I think it was in the, um, the summer uh, it, it, that you, you can't, you can't use that kind of ideology of, 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 of diminishing racism with a new form of racism uh, or, or, or segregating people based on perceived uh, imbalances in, in society where other groups have been segregated in the past. So we need to segregate 
other people who haven't been segregated before. And it's it, it, it's not going to lead to anything good as a result. Let me give you another example of this kind of hypocrisy. When we listen to Biden or the governor of New Mexico, whatever the case is, they're all saying your rights under the Constitution are not absolute. The First Amendment is not absolute. The Second Amendment is not absolute. Now, may I point out that the Second Amendment says shall not be, <laughs> be in, infringed, <clears throat> but apparently it's not absolute. Now, same people, your right to an abortion, which is not in the Constitution, they claim is what? Absolute. So the rights that are enumerated in writing in the Constitution are not absolute, but the rights that they perceive that are not addressed in the Constitution are absolute rights. Folks, you, you got to pay attention to this. You have to look at the hypocrisy. You have to just think it through. Does this make sense to me? Stone, to wrap up, what do you want our audience to do? Is there is there anything they should be doing to combat this other than voting? It, yes, yes. I would say uh, I think a, a, a really good thing that every audience member should do is to um, exercise caution, uh, extreme caution, whenever you're engaging in the voting process and, and always – uh, you use critical thinking as a means of truly understanding um, how a uh, perceived policy actually impacts your own life and also the, the lives of other people in your community. Don't uh, make hasty or, or um, incomplete decisions based on uh, your, your emotions or what, what kind of feels right at the time, or if uh, vote or thinking in a way that's al aligned with other people who are associated with a, a political view. Always think for yourself. Be independent-minded. Don't don't be a monolith or just participate in the political process in a way that is um, in line with how other people in your community or other family members have done. I, I think if you exercise that kind of critical thinking, that independence. Uh, th 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 I believe that's what our, our founding fathers would have intended for a well-informed uh, society where we have people who are more enlightened, who think for themselves, who exercise critical thought and are, are rational uh, agents who, as we said earlier, we, ha we have agency, we have control over our lives to do what, what we believe is in our best interest within our governing set of laws. We need to we need to have a greater sense of independence and, 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 and critical thinking restored in our in our educational system and also in our personal decision making. So I, I think that that's what I would say for this um, interview here. How do people get in touch with you or follow your work? Yes, uh, well, my you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, StoneZone47. Uh, and uh, in, in terms of reading my work, uh, you can um, find all my published work at uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, website, which is a CEI.org. And um, you can find all my op-eds and articles there. Um, and also, I'm also on uh, Facebook under Stone Washington and uh, LinkedIn under Stone Washington as well. Stone, So it's Stone Zone 47. I just found you. And it's X, not Twitter. It's a, yes, uh, or, or X, X. Yeah. All right. So, Stone, I just went and followed you. 
We've got all those added in notes. And I've got and, your national center on there too. For Yep. Fun. And we'll have all that in there. Stone, thanks for being with us. I hope you'll contact us again as you have more articles. And we'll be happy to have you back again. Folks, if you enjoyed today's show, send a link to somebody. And remember to uh, go leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. And that's it for today on Blunt Force Truth. See you next week.